Peter, happy Friday. Happy Friday at last. And we've got Juneteenth to look forward to here on Monday. So it is a long weekend uh, for, for us. So Juneteenth is actually a Texas holiday, which has now been made into a fake national holiday. And I believe largely so that federal workers can have another day off every year. But nonetheless, Peter, we are more, much more importantly, it's Father's Day. And I know you got a couple kiddos, so it's Father's Day weekend. That's, that's right. I, I completely forgot about the kids. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, no, good point. Yes, but you're right. That is the ultimate goal, is that uh, federal workers will have every single day off. It will be National Secretary's Day. Uh, we'll just keep going. And eventually, if we give them the entire year off, then we can just give them a salary and they can stay home. So I want to take care of a couple of housekeeping items, first of all, um, before we get into this topic, which is capital controls. Uh, first of all, I wonder if you and, and uh, EJ have noticed, but the Standard & Poor is up 16% year to date. It's on track to have its best first six months of a year ever. The NASDAQ's up 32% year to date. And here we are. Austro-libertarians on Twitter moaning about how everything's coming apart. So what's going on with that? <laughs> EJ, do you, do you have thoughts on what's happening to the market? Uh, a couple things come to mind right away. You know, the first of, of which is that once you adjust uh, market gains over the last couple of years for inflation, you realize that things are, are nowhere near as, as rosy as the as the nominal numbers are in terms of, you know, why are they why are they going up right now, though? I think some of that has to do with the fact that uh, investors are are still uh, pricing in a much more dovish Fed. Um, than than we're likely to see, you know, however, you know, Powell is the same guy that said a 75 basis point hike was off the table and promptly delivered four in a row. So who the heck knows <laughs> what this Fed is actually going to do. Um, but, you know, as long as we have the easy money, you know, we, we sometimes forget that stocks are not priced in real terms. They're priced nominally. So if you continue to have the money printers rolling, you'll continue to see uh, asset bubbles everywhere, I think, in, including in stocks. Yeah, that's so important. People think talk about returns net of uh, fees and taxes, but really returns are net of fees and taxes and inflation. And, you know, I was talking to Peter St. Andre earlier and he said something to fact, oh yeah, I was, I was seeing all the hype on NVIDIA and I bought some options and I just about had a heart attack because <laughs> being the pessimist I am, I assumed he had shorted NVIDIA and then he quickly assured me he had not gone the other way. So uh, Peter's calling us up. I, Peter's calling in from his yacht, I think, today. Uh, no, no. Uh, NVIDIA covered my losses in Bitcoin. So uh, I just broke even. No, okay. one of my first mantras is every time you hear something is a bubble, get some options on that thing because most bubbles go on for a while. And so I, I confess I am a gambler. I'm a degenerate. I make fast money. Uh, but most of my money is in uh, Bitcoin and gold. So, well, I broke it even. Yeah. Peter, to to your point though, tulipomania went on for a very long time. Oh to yeah. To the point to the point where flowers were selling for uh, you know some multiple of the average laborer's annual wages. So the idea that you can't make money on on these bubbles, uh, you know, I, I think that's silly. But at the same time. If we're going to go down the road of the greater fool strategy, uh, eventually you might get caught with your pants down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's why the options to limit the downside. Um, but I mean, historically, uh, you know, probably the two biggest factors, I think, investing anyway, is number one, you need to know where you are in the cycle. Um, for me, anyway, that's where Austrian economics is an absolute godsend. Uh, it can tell you, you know, are you in the boom phase, are you in the bust phase? And we know it's a cycle, right? Mainstreamers, all these things just fall out of heaven. Like, my God, you know, has this ever happened before? Like everything they see, it's like for the very first time, it's like somebody with, with just, you know, horrible amnesia, like uh, they can't spot any of the patterns. And to me, anyway, that's one of the most powerful things for an investor anyway in Austrian economics is understanding that this is a cycle. It will go on. You know, the the uh, the actors are going to play their parts like they have for a century. The Fed's going to do its thing and, you know, the government's going to do its thing with the fiscal. And I mean, it, it's all extraordinarily predictable. 
But here's the problem, Peter. What if the cycle continues and then you're dead? Right? Uh, Timing yeah. is everything. Oh, for sure. Yeah. We, uh, yeah. Well, that's why, I mean, hence most of it is in gold, uh, you know, which is basically agnostic. I think, you know, if you're parking your money in gold or real estate, you're basically saying, uh, look, you know, the water's too choppy. I'm not going to go swimming in this one. And, uh, you know, I'm going to take a pass and, and well, swing at the next pitch. Here's the thing about investments. When you die, you don't want your wife and kids to be too happy. Um, you, you know, you, you want them to be happy and taken care of. But I, I just want to ask you guys, uh, have you been following this new iShares Bitcoin trust courtesy? An, an application has been made uh, to the SEC by our good, good friends at BlackRock, who apparently are batting nearly a thousand when it comes to SEC applications. Yeah, that I think is going to be a game changer. You know, there have been a whole bunch of outfits that have tried to come out with uh, Bitcoin ETFs for a long time. And the SEC's position was that Bitcoin is too volatile or it's manipulated, which which commodity is not manipulated? (laughs) You know, even gold, which is an enormous uh, market, there's a lot of discussion about, um, you know, London banks and there's a lot of games going on. Once you dig into the smaller commodities, things like coffee and copper, I mean, there's manipulation, there's volatility. Gold itself has doubled or dropped in half within a year or two period, several times since Nixon, that's pretty darn volatile. So these were excuses so far. And I think in the Bitcoin community, people just felt like the SEC was trying to punt. Uh, They just don't like Bitcoin. And so they've been trying to uh, deny it. Uh, But of course, now we have an immovable force in the form of BlackRock, who I have to assume has paid everybody who needs paying uh, so, you know, this time it may actually happen. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually told that some of the people at SEC have worked at Goldman Sachs and BlackRock and vice versa. That's the rumor, Peter. Um, That's well, stunning. Yeah, stunning. I, well, I don't know we'll if just, I believe conspiracy we'll, theories. Yet. Well, we'll leave it at that. But, uh, you know, SEC and BlackRock, there's just nobody to, to root for here. And I hate to see uh, Bitcoin taken anything in you know centralized in any way I, I i mean i understand that this is an etf it's really a trust but it's an etf so i understand yeah. but it's just it's just not not a welcome development from my perspective but i wanted to just frame things really quickly it promised to show out capital controls which to a lot of people's ears probably sounds far-fetched that's the kind of thing that happens in venezuela or argentina or uh you know during world war ii but in fact i would argue that it's much more possible, much more likely here at home than we might care to admit, and that we ought to be cognizant of it and prepare ourselves and protect ourselves from this kind of thing. So last week's show, uh, my, my buddy, my co-host, Ben Nadelstein, is not with us today. He, he was with me for that show. He's, I won't disclose where he is. I'm just going to say he's visiting his ancestral home in Eastern Europe, which is pretty cool, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. But Ben and I had a conversation about what the deteriorating situation with the so-called rule of law in the U.S. means in terms of our own wealth and prosperity, because I I think Americans are pretty clueless about the extent to which capital flows into the U.S., both in terms of uh, foreigners and foreign banks and foreign governments buying treasuries, but also just capital investments in the private sector, uh, in large part because we are seen as having a relatively stable society in terms of our economy, in terms of our infrastructure, our banking system, our, our energy systems, but also due to the fact that, you know, if you enter into a contract in the United States, you generally expect it to be performed upon or at least enforced uh, or remedied by a court of some kind. And so when you start to have a series of events, let's say, Uh, the uh, crisis of 2008, which resulted in all kinds of unprecedented steps by the not only the U.S. Treasury in terms of bailouts, but also the U.S. Central Bank in terms of asset purchases. When you have things like COVID come along and you have business lockdowns and shutdowns and supply chain disruptions by basically by force of law, when you have things like rent moratoriums. People buy properties thinking that they're going to be paid rent by their tenants or that those tenants will be evicted. Well, that was off the table for a while. You'll, you saw a mortgage interest moratorium. Uh, you saw huge payments made to businesses who weren't doing anything 
uh, weren't producing a good or services like like airlines during COVID. Uh, you saw all kinds of restrictions on movement. Um, you know, these kinds of things are not costless. And now I would argue that when you have an increasingly politically polarized U.S., uh, you have sort of red team and a blue team viewing, for example, the indictment of Donald Trump through a very different lens that all of this uh, bit by bit, you know, a thousand cuts is doing injury to the perception that America is run by the rule of law. So uh, if that's true, capital might not be so interested in flowing into the United States. Uh, we've already seen, uh, you know, attempts uh, the BRICS nations, of course, are getting together in August to try to come up with some alternatives to this U.S. dollar uh, domination in the global mm -hmm. financial markets. You know, you see all kinds of reasons why the rest of the world might not want to be um, under the Uncle Sam's dollar empire. But the question becomes, as things get wiggier in the United States with with respect to the dollar itself, and I would also argue with respect to entitlements, I would argue with respect to congressional spending and deficits. Uh, mm -hmm. What might that mean for people wanting to do what they will with their capital who are already here? Uh, boy, there's a lot of different ways that could go. And what we consider capital controls, I think we should we should discuss, uh, perhaps for starters, Peter, what are capital controls? But then what are some forms of capital controls that we don't normally associate with the term? Yeah, well, this is something that's been very topical. Uh, there's been a lot of discussions, even on Bloomberg or Financial Times. Uh, you've got mainstream commenters now talking about the possibility of capital controls. In fact, the Fed's been talking about it. Since the March bank crisis, the Fed has been putting out paper after paper complaining how dangerous it is that bank runs go so fast. Okay, They keep blaming uh, smartphones, you know, and... One of the sort of most dangerous phrases you ever want to hear in politics is that they come in and they say, ah, this time is different. Technology has changed. This is new reality. We can't do what we've done for a century because, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. And in this case, it's iPhones. So iPhones are apparently causing bank runs. Now, the difference here is that in 2008, bank runs took weeks. Okay. And now... Indeed, because of cell phones, bank runs are taking hours. Now, the problem is not the cell phones. The problem is the freaking banks, that the banks are not supposed to be insolvent. But the problem here is that the Fed is putting out paper after paper about this existential problem, implying that they'd like to do something about it. So what do you do about the fact that bank runs are taking hours? And the answer is called capital friction. Okay, you introduce some sort of tool that discourages people from moving their money. If they don't obey those tools, you know, you can make it more difficult. Uh, you, you, you can have um, uh, approvals on it. Uh, there's a great book called American Default that talks about um, the whole episode in the 1930s where FDR uh, seized the gold and, you know, basically nationalized um, the banking system. But in that book, he talks about the kinds of controls that used to exist in banks because remember, banks have been fractured reserve for a long time, meaning that they've been uh, essentially bankrupt for, what, about 150 years, ever since the um, suffix system. And what banks used to do is that if the bank was in distress and you wanted to take your money out, literally what would happen is that you would take your money out. And then if you wanted to put it in another bank, the other banker would ask you for a letter from your previous banker indicating that you're a good customer, okay? And your banker would not issue that if the bank was in distress. So, I mean, banks have been playing this game for a very long time, and now what we're looking at is you can force it, right? Because of the Bank Secrecy Act of 1970, that has given, really, government, fundamentally, regulators, complete control over your money. Now, allegedly, they do it because of money laundering and tax evasion and, of course, the terrorists, but the end result is that they have total control. We, your money is permissioned. It can only move if you get permission. And if there is some kind of a bank crisis, there is a very real possibility that they'll do, you know, what Justin Trudeau did last year in Canada, right? He froze all those accounts. Now, he did it because he was alleging 
uh, well, anyway, he didn't like the protesters, but they can absolutely do that if they feel it's quote unquote necessary. So they could freeze your money in. Uh, Luke Groman had a, he did not mince words. He said that, uh, you know, capital controls could amount to chaining the theater doors shut before lighting it on fire. It could lock you in. And, and to be clear here, what, when most economists or political scientists use the term capital control, they are referring to cross-border international transactions. In other words, some kind of limitations on the open movement of capital across international borders. So that would be tariffs, taxes, uh, prohibitions, volume restrictions, whatever that might be between two separate countries. But I think we could view capital controls a bit more narrowly than that for our, for our discussion. I mean, anything that distorts or limits or affects your, your use of your capital, and that's generally government or central banks, I mean, could broadly be construed. So when you mentioned the Bank Secrecy Act of 1970, which imposed a, re- a reporting rule, uh, any transactions of $10,000 or more had to be reported uh, to the Treasury Department by banks. And later on, with uh, amendments to that bill, also with the Patriot Act itself, uh, that was expanded to automobile dealers, jewelers, pawn shops, um, all kinds of non-bank institutions. And of course, $10,000 in 1970 is something like $80,000 today. So you should be able to go buy a, a Lexus in cash and not have anybody report that. So I, I would argue that something like the Bank Secrecy Act in and of itself, the fact that a cash transaction above $10,000 is report is a form of capital control. It's, it's it's an attempt to steer your behavior in, in effect. Right. And then that brings us to the question of de-dollarization, because if they put these kinds of controls on, like if they panic uh, to a series of bank runs and start trying to put controls on, those controls are not only going to be on Americans, they're going to be on foreigners. So at that point, it is a game changer for foreigners deciding where to park their assets, right? So all the trillions of dollars that foreigners have currently in U.S. banks because they're thinking the U.S. is secure, it's a rule of law, of course, my money's never going to be seized, it's never going to be frozen, uh, that completely changes the calculus for them at that point. And then, you know, we're, we're already seeing massive um, flight from the U.S. dollar if capital controls are a reality in the U.S. And, you know, if they do it once, they're going to they will likely do it again and again. And at any rate, foreigners will expect them to do it again and again. That could be catastrophic for the dollar. EJ, uh, I want to get your thoughts on this, though. Uh, you know, I, I think in some ways it's helpful to view this uh, from the standpoint of risk, at least when we're when we're discussing how are people going to react to things like like capital controls. You know, any any time you have a risk of loss, you are always going to price in a, a risk premium. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about, uh, you know, something as simple as buying a bond or if we're talking about some some much more complicated uh, financial or even other human interactions. So if you have a risk that a government is going to step in and, and somehow uh, confiscate your private property, and they're able to do that because that particular private property is, let's say, priced in that government's currency, you now attach a risk premium to that transaction. Again, whether it's an investment or or something else, it doesn't really matter, but you're going to attach a risk premium to that, which means that unless it somehow uh, gets cheaper to compensate for that, you will engage in that transaction less. And in a very practical, um, a a very practical example of that is simply reduced foreign investment in this country. Well, I wonder if people understand the extent to which uh, sanctions themselves are a form of capital control. I was talking to uh, an acquaintance recently, and in his uh, online trading account, I don't know if it was E-Trade or or Schwab or whatever it was, uh, one of the assets he owned over the past uh, several years was Gazprom, (laughs) the the big Russian uh, once- formerly state-owned oil company, which is now publicly traded. And so his he can't trade his shares. Those are frozen him. He's a U.S. citizen. Okay, he, He's operating in the United States. So, I mean, that's, that's a very small example 
of how this stuff begins to come home. But you could really take, a, I think, a bigger lens and argue, uh, I mean, really since the 1940s and 50s after Bretton Woods, uh, there's been a, a variety of ways that uh, at least the banking level, maybe not always on the individual level, um, that capital inflows and outflows have been controlled. Now, the U.S., we were the big winner coming out of World War II. We didn't have the, the hardships and the rationing post-war uh, that places like the U.K. had. Obviously, Germany was devastated. So we've had, we've had it relatively good. And part of that devastation in Europe, of course, and the capital controls imposed uh, to try to, I guess, in, very, in a very cumbersome way, uh, stem the bleeding on that, that, that's in part the reason why the euro dollar arose in Europe, because people mm -hmm. are always looking for a way around this. And, and I was reading something last night that I, I didn't know was very interesting. As late as the 1960s, um, there were weekend limitations on how much a, a Brit could take out of the bank for the weekend, like 50 pound limit, which I suppose was a pretty sum uh, in the 1960s, enough to go to the pub or the seaside or whatever you might want to do. <laughs> Uh, but boy, oh boy. And, you know, you fast forward to today, I would argue something like a negative interest rate, which was very prevalent in the past decade on all kinds of uh, euro bonds. I mean, we're talking about sovereign government debts trade, you know, nominally, not just real terms, but nominally negative interest rates. That to me, that's a fee or a capital control on on holding money and cash mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, forcing you to go out perhaps and, and use it to make a purchase or to invest in some stock or bond or something. Uh, you know, if we look at the FATCA regime in the U.S., anyone who's got a foreign bank account will be fam familiar with this uh, little uh, dental drill exercise uh, every April when you're doing your 1040. You know, a FATCA filing is, is an informational report to the IRS that you have what's called a financial account held in an offshore jurisdiction, which A, is none of their business. Uh, and, you know, it, you were not taxing wealth every April. We're supposed to be taxing income. But B, uh, I wonder how many people do not have foreign bank accounts simply because they don't want the disclosure of a FACA filing or, or just the headache of maybe, you know, needing an accountant or checking the right box or whatever it might be. Um, so it's, it's really, if we consider how capital controls have worked on cross-border transactions since, let's say, World War II in the modern context, and then we layer on the level of surveillance and, and you know, digital monitoring and digital enforcement, which can take place now, you know, I, I mean, talk about digital dollars. For the people on this call, virtually every payment you make, whether you know your monthly, I don't know, your mortgage, your rent, your your you know buying at the store, I, I would argue that probably ninety percent of all that is already digital, right? You're not actually uh, transacting with cash. So, um, you know, a central bank digital currency would just be the next step, really, uh, in, in terms of centralizing the issuance of that. And, and then that, of course, as Neil Kashkari himself has, has admitted, uh, would be a very virulent form of control. I, I think that's, that's the next step. I think that is, that is a way to basically present a capital control in a way that doesn't feel like, like capital controls must have felt after World War II. Right. And this is one of the subtexts, like when we're talking about CBDCs and how they give so much control to bureaucrats, right, that they can veto any transaction, they could force any transaction, uh, they can impose negative interest rates. All of these tools are actually available now, like they can homebrew it. A CBDC makes it a heck of a lot easier. You know, it's the difference between doing it by hand and doing it by machine. Uh, and, you know, that's a significant difference. But the, the U.S. government specifically, uh, you know, whatever Americans may think about our country, we are almost unique in how much we are controlled by our federal government. I think uh, there's like one or two other countries in the world that tax you on a worldwide basis, for example, like Liberia, somewhere random. So, you know, if you move to uh, another country, from the IRS's perspective, you're still at home. The entire world belongs to the IRS from their perspective. You mentioned on the FATCA, the IRS thinks that, you know, they, they want information from every single bank in the world. 
I mean, really, it's it's sort of liberating to be from some ridiculous little country where <laughs> they don't chase you around the world. Uh, and, you know, they've installed this step by step each time, you know, it was either for the terrorists or the money launderers or the drug dealers. It's the same excuse every single time. And what they've now built is uh, terrifying. It, it, it gives essentially all of the functions that we fear, rightly, in a CBDC, uh, it is all there. And, you know, if we look at what's happening uh, with the banks right now, uh, I know EJ has been paying a lot of attention to the money flows going out into money markets. That is signaling that the bank crisis is not over. What they have done cannot fix it. The money that's flowing is flowing because interest rates are too high. There is only one solution to it, which is to go back to ZERP, zero interest rates. The Fed cannot do that because it would cause inflation. And the one thing that the Fed fears most in the world is inflation because it would lose its independence. That's its true goal. Screw the economy. Screw the American people. Uh, it needs to keep its independence so that it can continue acting as a uh, counterfeiting cartel. But EJ, you may have thoughts on the money flows. You know, there's there's a couple things we can say here, um, you know, not the least of which is is the fact that uh, a lot of times I think when we when we talk about capital controls, um, we're talking about legislation. Uh, we're talking about, um, you know, actions by the executive branch. Uh, but but Peter makes a really great point that the Fed's uh, monetary machinations are effectively uh, capital controls. Right. They they are in their own way manipulating markets. Uh, when when you do things like create asset bubbles, you create uh, distortions of prices and you get misallocations of capital. Uh, so I, I think we we should keep in mind that these things don't always need to be done uh, through legislation, that they can be done through other means, such as these these unelected individuals uh, at the Federal Reserve uh, in, in terms of you know, what they're doing right now. Um, and I hope I'm not, uh, you know, hijacking the conversation here. Um, but it, it really is amazing. Um, looking at things like reverse repurchase agreements, reverse repos, uh, the interest on reserve policy, you know, the fed right now has essentially sidelined $6 trillion, an absolutely unprecedented mm -hmm. amount of money. This is uh, Ben Bernanke on, on steroids to a certain degree. And, and they've done it all in the name of trying to prevent inflation, as Peter pointed out. That's the mortal enemy, right, is inflation. Uh, but the downside here is that, number one, they're starving the private economy for cash. You're, you're giving government all the loanable funds they need, but denying it to the private market. And then at the same time, they're paying $800 million a day in interest. They're paying it to big banks. Uh, they're paying it to uh, to hedge funds, uh, to money market funds, et cetera. So the politicians are getting paid. The special interests are getting paid, except how is this going to end? They can't scale it back because if they do, that money gets out into the private economy. It gets into the banking sector. And now the money multiplier kicks in. And by the way, the Fed very quietly during COVID got rid of the reserve requirement. So now a single dollar could theoretically create an infinite amount of money. It's no longer that magical 10 to one ratio. Uh, so they can't stop. But if they keep going with this, what happens? They keep paying interest, which means they actually grow the money supply, which means they need to tighten harder and faster as time goes on. There, there literally is just no way this ends well. As I like to say, the, the Fed has the wolf by the ears and they can neither hold mm -hmm. him nor safely let him go. And and this is just, I think, one example of how when you get these um, when you get these unprecedented en interventions into capital markets, whether in this case it's the loanable funds market or anything else, uh, you're going to you're going to meet with disastrous consequences. You have a handful of individuals imagining that they can somehow design and master a market that is determined by the interactions of billions of people. Yeah, Jim Grant has a great line, um, the author, and uh, was a Grant uh, interest rate observer. Uh, he says, the Fed has a dual mandate, arsonist and fireman. It starts the fires and then it rides in and pretends to put them out. And what happened with COVID, they bought the lockdowns. They had to bribe the population to accept those. That cost them so much money 
you know, and then they had the power grab. And so that involves so much more money. Uh, I think it was about $6 trillion that they pumped out during COVID. They have started a fire that they cannot put out. And so now that they've put on their pretend fireman hat, it ain't working. And so the only way that this is going to end, either in a catastrophic uh, economic crash, which does the deflation, then they get back to the next bubble, uh, or they're going to have to step out of the system and they're going to have to look to something like, uh, what is it, capital frictions, capital controls. Well, the, the interest piece on the federal debt is interesting because we have to remember that this five-point spike or whatever in treasury debt has really only been since 2022. So yeah. this is all just in the last year or so. If you look at the, the total average weighted interest rate on all outstanding U.S. Treasury debt, it's still at or about below 2%. Yeah. Um, you know, the, up until uh, the, the 2022, the average weighted interest rate on all U.S. Treasury debt was only like 1.6%. So that was how it was very easy for Congress to maintain at that point, you know, high 20s trillions worth of debt because the service on that debt, which we might call the minimum payment on a credit card, credit card by the way, uh, was very, very low. So now, even as that number creeps up to 2%, uh, we get up into $800 million a day, as DJ mentioned, in interest payments, which means pretty soon, if that creeps up to three, four, five, uh, that'll very quickly swap federal spending, become the single biggest line item in the annual budget, bigger than so-called defense, bigger than Social Security, bigger than Medicare. So that's that's a big enchilada. That's a lot of money to be paying out. So as this deteriorates, and of course, in the meantime, Uncle Sam's promising to pay all those military people. He's promising to pay all those seniors their Social Security and Medicare. Uh, he's promising to pay uh, Ukraine or whatever he's, he's promising. Um, the question becomes... Could inflation become really stubborn, really durable in the U.S.? I, I won't use the term hyperinflation because I think that's subject to a lot of different definitions and um, in many ways on, on least likely here because um, monetary policy and currency wars are a relative game in, in a very important sense. So I, I won't use that term, but I will say what if there's just persistent stubborn uh, inflation, double-digit inflation for a decade or so. And, and that's not far-fetched. We more or less experienced that, maybe not for a decade, but in, in a portion of the 70s and into the early 80s. Um, then capital controls become, I think, more likely because generally ca we associate capital controls with times when the economy is out of control uh, in places like Venezuela, in places like Argentina in the late 90s, early 2000s, unfortunately, Argentina's back to something like that. Uh, we had some capital controls for a period when Iceland had its meltdown in 2008. So all, all of these things that make us very concerned about the broader economy and inflation are also the things that ought to make us concerned about Uncle Sam resorting to capital controls. I, I don't know about you gentlemen, but when I read FinTwit, or when I, even worse, uh, hold my nose and go out into the Financial Times or, God forbid, The Economist or even The Wall Street Journal, which I consider an excellent business reporting paper, but a horrible editorial line. Um, I, I mean, talking about capital controls would be like talking about Martians. I mean, it's just it's just not done. Yeah. And, you know, the fiscal trajectory that you're talking about. So currently one year treasuries are paying five point three percent. And the debt payments are not that high because a lot of the debt is old, right? Like they borrowed on 30-year terms, and so it had rates, you know, from during the uh, zero interest rate period. So just as a thought experiment, if the entire federal debt were running on today's interest rates, then you'd be looking at about $1.8 trillion in debt service, which is astounding. The entire budget wasn't $1.8 trillion in in uh, early Obama, it might have been around there. Uh, that's just debt service, right? That's not even all the rest of the crap. Uh, they keep handing out trillions like candy, right? So you had this Build Back Better, the rebranded Inflation Reduction Act last year. Uh, you had, uh, what, student loans for 600 billion. That was just like an afterthought, like, oh, hey, by the way, here's a little something for you guys uh, to buy some votes. Uh, they're talking about, what, 300 billion for Ukraine? Uh, 
EJ, I think you, you, you'd seen something on that earlier today. Uh, oh, this but, is... There, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Please. Sorry, no, this, this is just absolutely atrocious. Now they... Now they want to start sending Ukraine not only you know our tax dollars, which is bad enough, but now they want to take the dollars that they confiscated uh, from Russia. To be clear, these are not American-owned dollars. These are dollars owned by the Russian people, by the Russian central bank, and they want to take those and now just gift those to Ukraine as well and throw that, you know, throw that on the bonfire. Yeah, so you know, it's just an endless um, stream. There's there's no countervailing force. I mean, really, the only way to stop them doing this is crisis. And if a crisis comes in, then given a choice between cutting their spending and cutting our spending, uh, they've already shown that's a very easy choice for them. And so the problem is that that predicts a 1970s economy where you've got multiple years of double-digit inflation. The problem is that 1970s only stopped because of Paul Volcker, right? Paul Volcker was appointed by Jimmy Carter, and to everybody's surprise, he did what it took. He had a huge pair. He walked in, he jacked interest rates, so I think it was 19%. It caused a horrible recession, yes, but it ended, in in fact, the pair, but it ended the recession. The problem is that Jimmy Carter lost the election. Washington, the Uniparty, learned its lesson. That is not going to happen again. There will be no president who intentionally appoints a Paul Volcker because that's the end of his career. So as lucky as we got with Paul Volcker, that took Washington by surprise. They didn't expect that one. I think it's very unlikely that it'll happen again. Yeah, well, we Paul Volcker was the last chance, the last gasp of, of an attempt to have a saving a capital based economy rather than a debt based economy. So I, I think we won't see that again soon. But, you know, there are examples. Um, I, I, last couple of days I've been reading up on uh, Argentina, what's still happening there today. And of course, the difference is that all of our examples of hyperinflation and resulting capital controls, all of our historical examples, at least in the 20th, you know, recent history, let's say the 20th century, uh, these have been, uh, you know, national currencies, the, the, the Weimar Deutschmark. Um, you know, we saw this in the former Rhodesia. We saw this in Venezuela a couple of different times. We saw this in Argentina. But it was, you know, talking about this in the context of the world's reserve currency, the U.S. dollar, is a very different thing. It's basically unprecedented since maybe silver had its meltdown centuries ago. And so we don't we don't know what that might look like. That's certainly above my pay grade. But nonetheless, if if you go and take a look at Argentina just over the last couple of years, it's it's really interesting what happens when the government limits the amount of foreign goods you can buy uh, or messes around with the exchange rate with foreign currency and also limits the amount of foreign currency you can exchange, even at a a hellish penalty. So as a result, I found a really interesting article on Medium, which I guess is still around, medium.com, by a woman. She's talking about all the different dollars there are in Argentina. There's the official dollar. So this is like the fictitious uh, price of of the pe- Argentine peso, uh, it's devalued like you know, uh, thirty cents a day or whatever. There's a savings dollar which you go purchase at a bank. Uh, there's what they call a blue dollar, which is a colloquial term that in the United States we would call black market, right? That's mm-hmm. that's a dollar that's worth what it's worth. And of course, we had this for many decades in the former Soviet Union. People were buying and selling all kinds of goods on the black market in the, the former uh, Soviet, uh, uh, you know, republics. So that's, that's nothing new, but her, the interesting thing is uh, they have something called the Netflix dollar. And this is because you pay a premium uh, for a foreign service like Netflix, courtesy of the government. And it, it appears to be sort of constantly in flux and you don't really know until you get your credit card statement. Uh, so, but something like 45 percent uh, of, of the payment is in taxes. So the Netflix, uh, Netflix dollar or the Netflix peso is worth more. And then interestingly, they even have a, a, a phrase called the Coldplay dollar. So apparently Coldplay a couple of years ago had a series of con- concerts throughout the country. 
and there was the the face value of the ticket and then what you actually had to do to get a ticket to go see Coldplay. Um, I, I would take a hard pass on that one, but apparently even in tough economic times, uh, Coldplay sells tickets in, in Argentina. Who knew? But I mean, you know, the point is that go- governments can do all kinds of things, including and, and most fundamentally at the foundation, just try to fix exchange rates between, let's say, the U.S. dollar and another currency. They can do that till the cows come home. But people, human beings will always go out and effectively try to get around this in the marketplace. Right. And, you know, we do see already a two tier dollar uh, in the form of dirty money. Right. So drug dealers, for example, they'll get a hold of a bunch of dollars and then they've got to pay somebody to launder those. And there is a big difference. I guess it's like a third or something. Uh, There's a big difference between those two. And of course, the reason why clean dollars are worth more is because they can interact with the rest of the uh, U.S. surveilled financial system worldwide. Uh, But if we go to a kind of system where U.S. capital controls are aggressive, where, you know, they're essentially trying to hide the Fed's mistake by forcing people uh, into, you know, um, one for or one uh, institution or another, you that like the whole thing falls apart because at that point, um, dirty money would actually be more valuable. But of course, dirty money is only valuable because it interacts with the banking system. Uh, the entire thing um, collapses. I think you could see a massive erosion uh, in the dollar. Now, of course, people have to hold something. You know, one of the mysteries, I think, of currency history has been that even when a currency loses backing, people still hold the darn thing. Uh, they treat it like it's a token at Chuck E. Cheese or or Ethereum, which is probably the same thing where, you know, it's it's like the token that you have to use if you enter this establishment um, called the U.S., So, you know, it doesn't necessarily collapse to zero overnight, but what does happen is that every other dirty shirt in the world, and there's a lot of them, from the euro to the Swiss franc to the Japanese yen, uh, even to the Chinese currency, uh, all of those start picking up tons of demands. And, you know, I think that that's where we come into that double digit uh, inflation. That, of course, would hit the entire U.S. economy. That is something that the Fed... Once that's set off, the Fed can't do much to stop it. Uh, you know, you can't hike interest rates high enough if foreigners no longer want to hold the dollars. And kind of the subtext here is that the number of dollars floating around in the world is far, far higher than the number of dollars that America actually needs. Right? Because foreigners for so long have accepted dollars because they've been relatively stable and have had rule of law, there are way too many dollars in the world. Maybe there's two or three times more dollars that are needed. That the Fed will not be able to stop. Those will float around. Uh, There will be leakage from the internal dollars. Uh, That, I think, would be a catastrophe for the U.S. But, you know, Peter and Jeff, I I think that is exactly uh, the time when the government would step in and impose these kinds of controls on on capital. Uh, You know, a great way to prevent a, the flood of 70 years worth of trade deficits all reversing overnight, right? When, when de-dollarization finally uh, gets cranked up to 11, which, you know, could happen soon, who knows? But whenever that finally does happen uh, and you have that flood of cash, it has nowhere to go but the United States and it comes back That's here. That's a great point. Right. That that would be when uh, the government steps in with with these kinds of capital controls to do anything and everything they can to limit how fast that money can get back here, because that's the only way they would be able to stave off that kind of inflation. And and who knows if, uh, depending on how good they are at that, at, at putting up a wall, if you will, around the United States, I know that's kind of a taboo subject in some circles, but you know, if, if they can do that, at least financially, then you, can, you could get into this kind of bizarre scenario where the dollar is worth significantly less overseas than it is here in the United States. Well, what does That's that a great point. Like? What, I mean, yeah. what, what, what yeah. does that look like at the outset, though? Let's say, let's say things begin to unravel internationally. I mean, what, what is, what's the first step? What do you do here at home? Do you, you simply tell people they can only take so much out of their bank, for example? Uh, I, I, think it, I think it's going to have much more, um, I think there'll be much more of an impact in terms of international 
transactions. Uh, in other words, you know, wh- wh- where it says on the on a dollar bill, which, by the way, we don't actually have dollars anymore. We call them dollars, but a dollar is, a, is not a unit of currency. It's a unit of weight. A dollar meant a certain amount of, of precious metal. What we have today are Federal Reserve notes. But if you look on that Federal Reserve note, it says that this is legal tender for all debts, public mm-hmm. and private. In other words, if you don't accept this uh, in trade, you go to jail. If this is offered to you, you have to take it. You cannot say, I will only accept Bitcoin uh, for my goods and services. You have to accept dollars if they are offered. Well, I mean, the government put that in place. The government can take it away. The government could very easily say for settling international trade, uh, especially only for our exports and putting no limitations on our imports, uh, you have to pay in something other than dollars. Maybe that's precious metal. Maybe that's something else. But at the end of the day, that's a, I think that is a very, very powerful tool to reduce the inflow of dollars to the United States. No, it is. And given that you've already got this system, you know, going with the dirty versus the clean dollars, you've already got a whole bunch of dollars in the world that they, even if they're physical paper dollars, uh, because their provenance is unknown, they're, they're sort of contaminated. Uh, you've already got that. And so if you simply extend that out to include all of the dollars that are not currently in the approved official U.S. banking system, then you could at a stroke uh, reduce the money supply, uh, what, by half or two thirds. And you could do it by ripping off foreigners. Well, I wonder you know, we talk about what maybe explain a little bit more what you mean when you say maybe there's there's two or three times more dollars out there than need to be. Do you mean that we have run trade deficits and so foreign markets have absorbed those and soaked all those up in treasuries or other forms as, as a result of that over many decades? Yeah, current account. Um, but right. So the metaphor I like is uh, we have a reservoir of dollars and if you print more dollars, which, you know, both the, uh, the Fed and the banking system do, as you print more dollars, the reservoir fills up, and that's inflation. And if it keeps going, we drown. Okay, we, we suffer the inflation. Uh, but what's been happening since Bretton Woods for the past 80 years is that there is a almost perfectly matching uh, stream that flows out of that reservoir towards foreigners in the form of foreigners wanting to store their money in what was a relatively safe currency. And so because those two rivers matched up and they matched up on purpose, where basically, you know, the Fed would look at the level of the reservoir. And then based on that, they, you know, they would adjust interest rates and and increase the flow or decrease the flow into it. So if that's the kind of world that we live in, then the problem is that the total amount of water that has gone out those rivers to the foreigners, if you add all of that up, nobody knows how much it is. Um, the Fed every so often takes a stab and writes a paper guessing how much money there is in the world. You know, there's um, dollars that circulate in overseas banking systems. Uh, there are dollars that are hidden. Uh, dollars are a very popular way of avoiding taxes really around the world. Uh, if you are a rich Mexican, you are not holding your millions in pesos. That would be insane. You're holding them in U.S. dollars. Uh, you're just keeping enough pesos for walking around money. And this is true for essentially every country, at least every um risky <laughs> uh, country on earth. So now if those dollars come floating back, that's the you know, big fear in de-dollarization is that those dollars start coming back. Uh, as they do, dollars then lose value, they become less attractive. Uh, and then even sort of agnostic holders of dollars like mm-hmm. Japanese banks, they start saying, well, this thing's too risky. They start dumping them. And then you can get that accelerated into a flow. And at that point now you've got 80 years of the river flowing out of the reservoir and all of that could in theory come rushing back. So that's the worst case scenario. And really, you know, the way to stop that is to somehow dramatically reduce the uh, money supply. And that would have a catastrophic attempt. I mean, if, if you're trying to reduce the money supply by half or two thirds, uh, that is, <laughs> I mean, we've, that used to happen all the time back in the day before the Fed existed. For example, in 1921, you can get around it as long as the government doesn't otherwise screw with things. Uh, but given our current system where the government does screw with things, uh, that would likely be uh, economically catastrophic. And so the alternative that they might turn to uh, is exactly capital controls. Well, I, I would like to say 
you know, what, what are people likely to do? In other words, people want to maintain wealth or increase it. And if you've read Safedine's book, the, the terminology he uses is, uh, you know, saleability across time and saleability across space. You want to own things that hold their value and that can be transported across time to your, you know, maybe future generations and also across space, whether that means within the United States or across an international border. So those are sort of the two criteria. If you look at most assets, stocks and bonds are easily controlled. You can even shut down markets. Uh, banks are easily controlled. So anything in a safe deposit box or any kind of account that's in a bank is quite easily controlled. Real estate isn't portable, uh, quite easily controlled by uh, tax or deed. So for most people thinking ahead, they're probably looking at either physical paper dollars outside of a bank, like under your mattress mm-hmm. or in a safe or something. They're probably looking at Bitcoin and they're probably looking at, at precious metals like gold and silver. So l- let's just talk a little bit about what, what those might offer. Yeah. Uh, EJ, do you have thoughts there? Well, I think just like in in uh, in days gone by, precious metals really take the cake here. Um, they are incredibly dense. I, I don't just mean by weight, but I mean by value, right? It does not take a large volume nor a large weight of these things to represent a lot of value. Uh, they are easily divisible. You know, you can't take a, a, a gemstone, for example, a diamond, cut it in half and have two diamonds that are now somehow equal to the value of the previous whole diamond. That's just not not the case. You have lost value and you can't reverse that. You can take a gold coin, meld it down, create two smaller ones, and then later reverse that. Um, So they are are much more uh, transportable. Obviously, you have the issue today of of it being illegal to hold these things, courtesy of FDR, right? (laughs) I can't have a giant uh, hoard of gold in a trunk at the foot of my bed. Um, But at at the end of the day, it's difficult to find something else uh, that is as good a store of value as is easily divisible, transportable, et cetera, uh, to precious metals. Well, of course, yeah, our, and, you know, I, I know that I saw that Jordan Schachter was with us earlier. I don't think he's still with us, but, um, you know, I think Bitcoiners would vociferously argue that it is superior in transporting across space because it's digital and you don't have to lug a trunk full of gold that some customs official and international border is going to seize for you. I mean, you know, I, I, I guess I agree in part and disagree in part, but I, I just want to say that's the devil's advocate argument for Bitcoin here. Sure. No, yeah, that, that's they, a really, yep. really great point. And, and I think the flip side to that is, uh, you know, Bitcoin itself does not have intrinsic value. In other words, what can I use Bitf- Bitcoin for? I can use it for transactions. Beyond that, that's really it, right? What can I use gold for? We have a whole host of different use, uses for gold, whether it's jewelry, whether it's industry, et cetera. Um, so I, I'm not saying either one is perfect. Uh, both have their, their own drawbacks, but... I, I still would say that it is difficult to find something um, that can compete with precious metals. Would Bitcoin be a competitor? I think that's fair to say. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. There's trade-offs on both, um, which are, you know, we've been through this many times through history, uh, this sort of debasement of the currency and catastrophic collapse. And gold has done the job every single time. Uh, the only, I think, asterisk, there is that, of course, we didn't have a digital economy. You know, so uh, the last time that we faced this kind of collapse, at any rate on a worldwide basis, um, you know, people were not buying things on Amazon over a credit card. And so the problem with gold in a modern economy, you could argue, uh, is that you need an intermediary. It has to be centralized somewhere. So you own your gold, you park it somewhere, and then let's say you have a credit card, uh, that is backed by gold, that can absolutely work 100%. And it would be far superior to the system we have today. Uh, but I think the fear that some people have is that, you know, of course, if you've stored your gold behind walls and guards, uh, the government is going to know how to find it. And, you know, indeed, this is, I've, I've been a gold bug my whole life. And one of the standard fiat complaints is, well, if gold is so amazing, how come no country uses it? And I think the answer is very simple, which is that governments are uh, very enthusiastic about the violence they use. And gold has a vulnerability um, 
Now, of course, if the government has completely fallen apart and it only has the resources to pay the Praetorian Guard, uh, then good's good to go because we have a functionally deregulated economy where <laughs> uh, the custodians can take care of themselves. Um, but at any rate, in that kind of a you know sort of modern economy where almost all transactions are happening remotely, the intermediation, I think, is an issue, and that's where people have confidence in Bitcoin. The flip side, the problem with Bitcoin is that the vast majority of people do not understand it. They do not trust it uh, because, as EJ said, um, it does not have intrinsic value. It's, it's modeled on gold, but of course it doesn't, doesn't contain any gold. And so if we're looking at a collapse that's going to happen in the next 10 or 15 years, uh, I think there's no chance for Bitcoin to do it just because not enough people are comfortable with it. Uh, I suspect that you know, the next candidate after fiat would be gold. Uh, Bitcoiners would continue, you know, proselytizing and, and getting new converts and so on. But um, we're not going to go directly from fiat to Bitcoin. Uh, if, on the other hand, the collapse we're talking about is going to take 30 or 50 or 70 years, then, yeah, it, 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 you know, we'll have to see what Bitcoin and gold are doing at that point. Well, we're almost out of time. I, I want to wrap up with a couple of things. A question for both of you. You know, we have lived under a narrative since, uh, certainly since the Second World War. Um, you know, we can broadly use the, the umbrella term of neoliberalism. I know a lot of people attack that on various grounds as a cop-out term, but let's just, for purposes of this conversation, we've lived under this for a long time. And, and that assumes that global trade and global commerce are beneficial, which is something with which I certainly agree, and also that they're inevitable. Um, and as a result of that, there's a pretty good argument that the world wants one money. Uh, gold was that money for a long time, uh, mm -hmm. but that national currencies uh, impose friction and transaction costs and exchange costs wherever you go, and that ideally we would have uh, one money. Now, most people on this call are probably highly dubious, high, highly suspicious of things like the IMF or the World Bank, the, uh, you know, a monstrous, you know, centralized digital currency for the whole world or something like that. We would probably want to fight against that. But is the world actually going in the opposite direction? Are we about ready to fall into regional currencies and currency wars, the kind Jim Rickards has written about in the past, um, as the, the dollars challenged because of our own profligacy, the Chinese, the Russians, the Indians, everybody else says, hey, guys, we don't want to live under this regime anymore. And it might be painful. It might take many, many decades. I'm not, I don't think de-dollarization is nigh. But nonetheless, I mean, might we be entering a, an era where uh, this neoliberal project uh, all centralized, all globalized is actually going to maybe revert back the other way to more regional and national differences. And that's going to have an effect on, on currencies. Well, I, I think uh, if history, yeah, yeah I, I think if history is our guide, you know, the, before the dollar really gained its supremacy uh, in global currency markets, uh, the forerunner to the dollar that we had the British pound, right? And, and that was really the supreme currency. And if you look at the interwar period, at least the first half of it, uh, Britain was able to really uh, introduce a kind of, of financial domination on the rest of Europe through uh, what, what was billed as a gold standard, but was actually a pound sterling exchange standard. And mm -hmm. when that all fell apart, you know, um, what essentially happened was uh, instead of moving to a, a universal currency, nations did exactly the opposite. They, they entrenched in a, a, a perverse kind of, of nationalism. And uh, as one historian put it, the age of beggar thy neighbor economics had dawned. Uh, and you got into both um, competitions in terms of tariffs on, on each other, uh, one nation on another, and then retaliatory tariffs. Uh, but then you also had competing devaluations. So you had problems both on the fiscal side and on the monetary side. And the result of that was actually a stagnation of international trade, increasing isolation even among neighbors. Uh, and, and the only countries that were really able to do well were either countries that didn't really rely much on international trade, 
or, or nations like Germany, where you had the brilliance of Hjalmar Schacht. And what he essentially did was he said to, country, to, to neighboring countries, especially in Eastern Europe, look, we will sell our goods and services to you at an insanely steep discount if you promise to also sell some of your goods and services to us at that same ex- insanely steep discount. So they essentially mm-hmm. subsidized each other's international trade uh, to try to, uh, uh, again, force people to buy German goods instead of British goods, for example. But whatever the case may be, it, it was all about uh, uh, hurting others in order to benefit yourself instead of actually mutually beneficial exchanges. So, you know, that again, that was a hundred years ago, almost. Um, so times obviously have changed, but at the same time, history doesn't repeat, but it certainly does rhyme. Yeah, I think, uh, I think you're absolutely right, uh, EJ. And we're seeing a lot of signs of that, uh, even now, you know, trade and barter, uh, China gives big discounts to countries that, um, sort of, you know, it can lock them into bilateral trade. I think sort of zooming out, we're living in an unsustainable age. And I think that's, you know, a lot of us understand that. I think that's why a lot of us are interested in these sort of um, historical episodes of collapse, because, you know, globalization is not sustainable. That's not the normal state of humanity. Uh, International socialism is not sustainable. That is not normal. Uh, So, you know, now a lot of people since I think the 1970s especially have felt like Uh, sort of intuitively that we are living in an unsustainable age and that there's going to be a comeuppance. It hasn't hit yet. And I think the reason is because we're still sort of working off the liberties that we had built up over centuries where the bad guys are taking over, but they haven't taken over completely yet. And of course, the people ourselves, we work hard, we build things, we, you know, we are naturally deflationary, we build stuff, we don't print money. The people build, and so, um, you, you know, we can sort of outrun the bad guys. The problem is that every crisis that they come up with ratchets that up a notch, and then there comes a point where the bad guys get the upper hand, and we start going backwards. You know, my entire life, just to give an example, life expectancy had been increasing, and I took that as just part of the ether. You know, we have technology, we have digital this and that. Yes, it's only natural that technology would advance. And since 2019, I think actually it was about 2017, before COVID, uh, life, life expectancy started going down. And for me anyway, that was shocking. That's like a 200-year trend. And that, to me, was sort of a canary in the coal mine that the system is breaking. Uh, the bad guys outran the good guys. I think that we're going to start seeing that going forward here where all of our lives we've expected world, you know, global economic growth, Uh, when there's a half percent growth in a country, we all think that's horrible uh, because we've had, ever since the Industrial Revolution, we've had almost unbroken growth. I think that we are now entering a point where it's an inflection point and we're going to start going backwards. And that, I think, is when the danger comes in and when things can accelerate. Well, I certainly agree with Peter that the idea of unsustainability, that we're living on borrowed time or that somehow we're enjoying unearned wealth off the fumes of earlier capital accumulation. I think that that's, that's something we as a nation feel. We can't always articulate it or understand it completely because obviously it's complex, but the U.S. government's abused the dollar. We've used it as a tool of empire, and we've all been a lot richer for a long time as a result of that. When we go to Walmart and there's a bunch of cheap stuff in there that doesn't bust our budget, that's been a, a, an exorbitant privilege as they say. Mm-hmm. And if it starts to come to an end, I would fully expect Uncle Sam and these uh, vampires who do things like run national treasuries and central banks in the West uh, are going to respond very, very negatively to that. And so uh, I think it's good that we're all thinking ahead, that we're talking about things like Bitcoin or gold or debating these things and uh, not just having our, our uh, heads in the sand. So uh, we're going to continue doing doing the Monetary Metals Debased podcast live on Friday afternoons and then just recording it. So uh, please stick with us. Look for us on Fridays. I want to thank both Peter and EJ. And let's just say, folks, that we're living in a golden age. 
of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, you know, uh, Kevin Roberts <laughs> is the new president with Peter with people like Peter Nietzsche. I mean, there's a it's a different world than Heritage 20 years ago. The Heritage I knew was 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 primarily, I guess, a social conservative uh, organization, and it was very much part of Con Inc. And I don't think that's the case anymore. And I think this is really healthy that the Heritage Insti Heritage Foundation has had the courage to go out and hire people like Peter and EJ and, uh, you know, shake things up. And because call it what you will, call it broadly the left or progressivism or whatever it is, it needs uh, more skillful opponents. And I think the Heritage Foundation is providing that. So if you have any questions, go ahead and just message me via Twitter Messenger, and I'll, I'll try to find them out if you have any topics, any guests, anything for the future. So, uh, Peter and EJ, thanks a million. Everybody have a great weekend, a great Father's Day, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Jeff.